I'm Nora McNerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. It has, as of this week, been four years since my husband Aaron died of brain cancer. It was the anger that surprised me. As a 31-year-old widowed mother who had spent three years caring for her husband as brain cancer devoured him, I had expected grief to be sad. I imagined my days would stretch out into an endless series of sob fests and weep-alongs. I considered making myself monogrammed handkerchiefs and buying stock in Kleenex, and then I realized I don't know how to embroider or how to buy stock, and I was too tired to Google either one because grief is exhausting. It doesn't seem like it should be since it drains you of the desire or ability to actually do anything, but grief made me feel like I'd accidentally had too much of the silly gas at the dentist. A sort of waking dream state if you dreamed of living your nightmare. I had a college habit of partying until 5 a.m. when the saddest local bar opened for business. So then we would just go there and continue the terribleness. (laughs) until like 8 a.m. and then go to sleep. I've had two children and I've run several half marathons, brag, 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 but I've never felt a deeper sense of weariness than that of a broken heart. For months, it felt as if my body and my soul were each wearing those sumo wrestling costumes you can rent out for parties. They were huge and heavy and slow and they couldn't even wrestle, so they just sort of leaned up against one another. Sadness, I could understand. Sadness, I could explain to other people, but I never had to because even the dullest of dimwits can understand that death is sad. I was ready for the sad, which meant I was ready for the crying. I wasn't ready to just hate some people for just being alive. Like, let's say someone was being rude to the people who work at the post office. I'd be like, oh, great. You're alive. You get to be alive. But my husband, who is always polite, is dead. Cool. I wasn't ready to be 100% legitimately jealous of elderly couples. Like, very upset with them for still having one another. Holding hands and rubbing it in my face. Holding hands at the groceries. How dare you? I wasn't ready for my default reaction to things that have no earthly business sparking me into a rage doing exactly that. I was so freaking mad about anything. The anger was inexplicable and unwanted, even though it shouldn't have been. It's right there in the five stages of grief. I knew those five stages, denial, bargaining, depression, anger, acceptance, but I assumed they were more of like a buffet-style situation where I could just pick and choose which stages I engaged with, in which case anger, no thanks, but I will take a double depression with a side of acceptance if you wouldn't mind. Anger only makes sense if you have something to be angry about and something to be angry with, and while, yeah, I am a person who has gotten to more than one verbal altercation in the Target parking lot this week. I couldn't see what anger had to do with my husband dying at 35 from brain cancer. 
as divided as this nation is, we can all agree that cancer is bad and we hate it so much. We hate it so much we keep mounds of compassion and research money towards curing it. We have many ribbons to wear, many races to run, many charities to donate to. Nobody blames you for having cancer. Nobody suggests that you died of cancer because you didn't try hard enough to live. And Aaron had wanted to live. He'd done everything he could to make his short life as long as he could. He'd had two brain surgeries, dozens of hospitalizations, so many rounds of chemo and radiation, we'd lost count. I could try to be mad at him, but for what? For not having symptoms we could have noticed earlier? For allowing his stupid cells to mutate into a brain tumor that would kill him? I could be mad at cancer, but it would be inefficient and unsatisfying. It's like being mad at your cat. Yell all you want at cancer or at your cat. They truly could not care less. They're still going to walk on your pillow after they step in their own poop. I had nobody to blame and nowhere to point fingers, but the anger came anyway. And like my grief, this started long before Aaron died. This anger was stage four incurable, just like Aaron's cancer. It boiled like lava in my chest. It turned everything I ate into soot and ash in my mouth. I shouted at the smokers who lingered outside the hospital, like angrily waving my hands in front of my face, as if I myself had never smoked a cigarette. As if the two seconds of secondhand smoke Aaron had passed through would give him more cancer right when he needed at least. I simmered with rage when I scrolled through Instagram and kept a mental note of every time our friends went to brunch without us, it was a lot. I kept a detailed mental scorecard with every infraction, every slight. A terse email from a coworker would turn into a vendetta. <laughs> with me dissecting every sentence of every communication, trying to prove that I was the victim of workplace rudeness. Aaron was not like this, not even a little bit. He would read an email that I uh, forwarded to him or after I shoved my phone into his hands, being like, read this, read what this person wrote to me. And he'd be like, I think, um, I think he meant just have a nice day because that's what, that's what he wrote. And I would just shake my head like, oh, you fool, you beautiful fool. He doesn't mean that, Aaron. He does not want me to have a nice day, okay? He wants the opposite, trust me. It's there in the subtext. It's there in the spaces between the words, have a nice day. How do you not see this? That's the kind of anger I had. Aaron either didn't have this kind of anger or was much better at hiding it. He had accepted his cancer with a zen that I did not have access to. He never asked, why me? But I did. I asked, why Aaron, all the time? It's not like I wished brain cancer on anyone. It's just that... Okay. Can we all just agree that... There are certainly people who deserve brain cancer more than other people. Where is the ethics committee that can tell me why the more 
awful the person, the less likely they are to contract a terminal disease and the more likely they are to be showered with blessings and riches and to live into a ripe old age. Look, I know none of this is good. I know that when someone dies, you are very ready for inspiration and that anger is not inspiring. I felt that struggle whenever the pilot light flicked on in my chest, whenever I could feel myself getting to let me talk to the manager level angry that Aaron had died and that awful people get to be healthy and pretty much live forever. Aaron's death turned that simmer of anger into a rolling boil that had nowhere to go but over the edge. My anger was shameful and slick. I'd have never said, wow, I am so angry that Aaron died, but I would boil inside when I'd scroll through Facebook looking for distractions and see a photo of him posted by someone else. I rejected invitations from friends because I knew that I'd leave their homes resenting that they had healthy young husbands to help them raise their healthy young children. I would see Aaron's peers taking new jobs or celebrating promotions and feel my stomach drop as if they had snatched that opportunity from Aaron's cold, dead hands. Just after Aaron's death, a student emailed him to ask him to sit on a design event panel that he had participated in for several years. I'd set up Aaron's email so that they would automatically just forward to my own inbox so I could catch any bills or important messages he may be receiving. I mainly just got sale alerts from Hot Topic. But I also got this email, and I read this email with actual laser beams of rage firing from my eyeballs. And my response was not gracious. My response was terse and cutting. How dare this person, this kid, not know that a total stranger had died? How dare they email him just weeks after his death? When a local mall I've never been to posted an event targeted to hunting widows, which, if you are not from an area where people hunt, it's not like they were um, encouraging people whose partners had died in a hunting accident to come take advantage of some sales, sales, sales. The term hunting widow is basically equating people whose partners have an avid interest in shooting animals and who go out into the woods for a whole weekend to people whose partners have died and will never come back ever. I acted when I saw this hunting widow's event as if a deep injustice had been done to me personally. I demanded this mall that I'd never been to and would never go to rename the event demanded apologies. I demanded, essentially, the head of their marketing person on an Ikea platter. I got none of it. (laughs) The prophet Oprah says there are only two emotions, love and fear. You may feel this is too simple a way to categorize our nuanced human hearts, but who are you to question Oprah? I was on board right away with love because love is pretty easy to get behind. 
even if Oprah didn't identify it as 50% of our emotional capability, I would know that, yes, love, that's a big one. Love is something I appreciate. As horrifying as it is to watch someone you love die from cancer, those three years I spent beside Aaron were made bearable by love. Friends signed up to be his radiation chauffeur. Servers at our favorite restaurant secretly picked up the bill for us on our rare nights out. Our home was always busy with friends dropping off food, picking up our son Ralph for an afternoon of fun, sitting on our couch with us to watch crappy TV and eat the junk food that Aaron found palatable. Love made a fundraising page that thousands of strangers contributed to. These people helped me pay for Aaron's medical bills and funeral expenses and pay her mortgage because, obviously, I decided that I should quit my job after I became a widowed mother. So, love. Yes. Fear. Huh? After Aaron's death, I was often complimented for my fearlessness, and I went along with it. Sure, I thought, I'm fearless. When the worst things have already happened to you, when you've lost a pregnancy, a parent, and a spouse within weeks of one another, you have a false sense of security. If it's already rained and poured, what are the chances of a monsoon? I honestly don't know. I refuse to look it up. But of course I was afraid. And for good reason, because there is no tragedy punch card you can fill up. There's no pass to get you out of the next difficulty. I was deeply afraid that my losses were just beginning. I slept with Ralph tucked into my arms every night and woke up to check his heartbeat. The same way I checked his dad's for three years. Fear was harder to identify, probably because it's a Scooby-Doo villain wearing a cheap pair of plastic glasses with a fake nose and a mustache attached to it, so you think it's something else. Something like anger. My anger was a shiny distraction from my dark, scaly fears, or maybe an extension of it. I wasn't angry that our friends felt distant. I was afraid it meant that I wasn't worthy of their friendship if I didn't have Aaron attached to me. When they said or did the wrong thing, I feared it was because they'd stopped caring about me. When a local person released a design that looked, honestly, far too much like the last one Aaron designed, I was filled with that rage, lava, and my angry thumbs got right to work on the most useful and effective tool of communication in the world, angry Instagram comments. I was afraid that Aaron was being forgotten. In the 1980s in Minnesota, public parks were equal parts fun and dangerous. Everything was made of metal, which gave you endless ways to sustain a head injury or a subtle burn. My favorite death trap was the merry-go-round, a giant piece of hard, hot metal that spun like a human-sized Lazy Susan filled with children instead of napkins and condiments. It was such a simple tool for happiness and broken bones. Grab onto the handle, get it moving, and jump on. My friends and I would spend whole afternoons trying to spin it faster and faster, laying like spokes, feet in the center of the wheel, while the world melted into a marbled blur. 
we took turns as the spinner, using all of our might to build the right momentum, running alongside this medieval torture device before jumping on and joining our friends for the ride. A lot of things could have gone wrong with this game, but somehow they never did. We never fell off. We sustained no broken bones. We're never afraid to pull ourselves on for another ride, no matter how fast it was spinning, no matter how crowded it was. But not every kid was like that. I can see some of them now waiting until we'd slowed down to a snail's pace before stepping gingerly on to the hot metal platform and wrapping their legs around the metal bars to hold on for dear life. And that's who I'd become. An observer of the world around me, which spun on like a merry-go-round with no space for me to get back on. That isn't anger. That, that's fear. A fertile place for anger to grow deep roots and wide branches. If love has opened up every door I've ever entered, fear has slammed my fingers in the door every time. I was lonely because fear was lonely. That volcanic rage was a good distraction from feeling small and scared, but it made me even lonelier. How can anyone be there for someone who is built to blow up without warning? This was an ugly turn of events, but a natural one. There's evidence of this all around us, evidence of the earth cracking open to pour out its burning heart. When lava cools, it forms things, mountains, islands. What will it form for me? We will be right back. And we're back. My friend and senior producer of this podcast, Hans Buto, visits his grandmother in the nursing home once a week. And I am telling you this because he would never want to brag about what a solidly good human he is. So... I have to do it for him. And I'm also telling you this because through Hans's good-hearted visits to his aging grandmother, I've gotten a lot of benefits. I hate the way we stereotype old people as cute or wise. Old people are just people who have been on this earth for a long time, and calling them cute is demeaning, like they're human accessories, which they are not. Babies are cute little human accessories that we dress up. Old people are usually wise, though, because you don't get through multiple decades on this earth without learning a thing or two or six. And you don't reach your 70s unless you've gotten a healthy spoonful or two of not giving a crap anymore. The older the person, the more likely I am to trust their opinions as long as they aren't political because they are so often no longer burdened by social norms or even basic manners. My mom is only 67 and she's already very comfortable telling me how it is, especially when how it is is that my hair looked better longer, that my ombre is not doing me any favors, and that 
My sweater looks like I got it at a thrift store, but not in a good way. One Sunday, Hans was visiting with his 97-year-old grandmother, and he mentioned his friend Nora. I wasn't there for the conversation, but I just assume it went something like this. Nora's great, Hans says. She's just the best. Oh, Grandma, you'd love her. Also, a thing you two have in common, her husband is also dead. At this point, Hans' grandmother probably sat for a while thinking about how great I sounded and gave Hans this advice to give to me. Don't should on yourself and don't let anyone should on you. Hans's grandma. How did you know that we all needed this urgent message tattooed into our brains? Don't should on yourself. And don't let anyone else shit on you either. I am a master of should. I have always had the gift of knowing what other people should do and the charming habit of either giving them my unsolicited point of view or being irrationally upset with them for not living up to my unspoken expectations. I should all over people my entire life and especially on myself. My obsession with my shoulds had me living my life as if it were a shared Google Doc. I was paralyzed by the idea of what I should do, always turning to friends, family, complete strangers at the nail salon who look like they have it together, to see what they thought about my potential next steps in life. My own opinion has often come last or not at all. I went to college right after high school, not because I had a plan or because I had a passion to pursue, but because I thought I should go. I arrived at that expensive school directionless and left pretty much the same way. Probably because I spent those four years becoming a person that other people thought I should be. Freshman year, preppy Abercrombie model, Sophomore year, Paris Hilton party girl. Junior year, serious student who will start smoking because a boy she likes is a smoker. Senior year, wannabe grown-up who owns a closet full of professional clothing from Express. I then spent five years in New York City, a city I didn't really love because, duh, you should love New York. I stayed with boyfriends I was incompatible with. That's a generous way of putting it. Because I thought I should have a boyfriend. I accepted jobs that I should have wanted and built an entire career I never meant to have. If should were a person, it would be that friend of a friend who always talks over you at parties. If should were a software, it'd be a PowerPoint that advances automatically or a locked PDF document that you can't fill out until you pay to update the software. That's comforting in some ways. Should offers you a direction to take and eliminates the stress of having to really think about what you want. But that clear direction has a price. It eliminates possibility and wonder from your life. There's no room for want or drive or your own humanity when should arrives. Because should already has a plan.
should happens. Sorry, that's that's bad. And when your life falls apart, should happens even more. When my husband Aaron died, should was everywhere I went. I was being should on by family, friends, strangers on the internet who had access to a keyboard, an opinion, a few scant facts about my life. You shouldn't make any decisions for at least a year, said people who didn't realize that not making any decision is one, a decision, and two, impossible when you're the only parent to a small child relying on you to make decisions like where he'll go to preschool or where you'll live together. Children quite rudely insist on growing and changing exponentially each year, and they will not pause for grief even if you ask them nicely to. Besides, when you've spent years making actual life and death decisions for the person you love, any other decision is a vacation. Whether or not to sell a car or a house is nothing compared to deciding whether or not to continue chemo or to pursue alternate therapies. You should move out of that house, said people who didn't realize that our house was haunted by Aaron and that I still needed his ghost. I could see him out of the corner of my eye so often I could easily forget that he had died. I could tell myself, sitting in the basement and watching TV, that he'd just gone upstairs for a moment. Maybe to grab me a sparkling water, some snacks, I kept his spot open on the couch. You should stay in the house, said people who didn't realize that when Aaron's loss hit me, I wanted to light a match and burn that place to the ground. Some nights, walking into our empty bedroom was so difficult that I'd just fall asleep on the couch. Or I'd fall asleep in Ralph's big boy bed, which was a little twin thing that I assembled for him from Ikea with dubious skills. Those instructions are harder than they should be. There's no words. (laughs) Our house had been where Aaron and I had lived with Ralph and where Aaron had died. It was the set for our major life scenes, and my brain would revisit those scenes without my consent. You should go back to work and get your mind off things said people who thought that Aaron was just an unpleasant thought I could banish to the back of my mind. There are not enough PowerPoints in the world to distract you from this kind of loss, and my body refused to keep a schedule that would align with a desk job. I was often up all night long. I rearranged our kitchen cupboards at 3 a.m. I started movies at midnight. I read through the most mundane of Aaron's emails, just trying to soak up any scraps of himself that he had left behind. You should quit your job, said people who didn't know that Aaron and I had crawled deeply into debt over the course of his sickness. My career was not a passion of mine, but it also wasn't a hobby. It was a necessity. As crazy as this sounds, neither my mortgage lender 
or my bank had realized that the Earth had stopped rotating on November 25th, 2014, and both of those wacky places still wanted me to pay my mortgage and my car payments with money. The people who were quick to offer me a comforting should were people who had never been in my position. They had living husbands to help them raise their children. They had dads they could turn to for advice. They were on their second healthy pregnancy ready to deliver at any moment. Their lives were unfolding in the way they had expected. And mine had not. My discomfort made them uncomfortable. As a living, breathing, publicly crying reminder that their own lives could go off the rails at any time. What happened to my family deviated from should and rejected the natural order of things. Truly, a father should not die at age 35 from a horrible cancer. His wife shouldn't have a miscarriage right before then. That's not something that should happen. Those shoulds that were offered to me assumed that chaos could be managed, that every problem has an answer, that tragedy can be avoided if you just follow the plan. The people offering me those shoulds were trying to provide comfort, not just for me, but for themselves. If I could be fixed, if I could be okay again, get back into the natural order of things, then their comfortable lives didn't feel so precarious. After Aaron's death, I developed a bad habit of starting any book I was reading by flipping to the last page. Out of context, that page made no sense, but as the story progressed, remembering those last 300 words or so comforted me. This was going somewhere. It would be resolved. All I wanted was to be able to flip to the last page of this part of my life and know that whatever I chose to do, it would be all right. That's not the way books are intended to be read, and it's not the way life can be lived. I could have followed any of those shoulds or none of those shoulds, and the result would have been the same. I'd still have the same gaping hole in the middle of my soul. Aaron would still be dead. I would still have to live my life without him. That meant that every piece of advice, every should, was worthless. Because of all the people offering me some navigational assistance, none of them could actually do this for me. The only person responsible for my life, the only person who could and would live it, was me. No matter what kind of steering committee formed around me, I had to do the work. Personal responsibility is a bummer and I hate it. Tragedy wakes you up. When the hem of death's cloak brushes your hand and takes someone you love, you notice. You notice your hand. For the first time, maybe. How you have your mother's long fingers, your father's deep nail beds. How the lines and veins that decorated your mother's hands 
are now forming on your own. You notice time, how rapidly the days cycle through, how easy it is to let them pass without your consent. Your time is yours, or should be, but somehow you've subscribed to a job where your calendar calls the shots and your day seizes you. Your aha moment will likely not be a light bulb switched on in a windowless room, but an opening of the curtains while the sun rises. All around me, I saw the effects that traumatic loss had on people. Some people close themselves around their loss. It makes them and their world smaller. Nobody blames them for this, but they do get impatient with it. It's not easy to befriend a hedgehog whose quills are constantly out. Some people use that gaping hole as an incentive to climb out, to make themselves and their lives bigger, not just in honor of the person they lost, but in honor of themselves and of the glorious fact that they still get to be alive. Aaron's terminal cancer had given us an unquenchable desire for a life outside of should. Aaron didn't take his stage four cancer diagnosis and make it the center of his life. He let cancer take up the little bit of free time he allowed it. He worked full time and I did too. We went snorkeling on our honeymoon because, I mean, what the hell? Okay, if you have a seizure in the ocean and die while staring at a giant stingray sweeping across the ocean floor... What a way to go. What a story. When the doctor told Aaron he should take it easy after a second brain surgery, he ran a 5K in negative 13 degree weather six days later. This is actually not a good example, not medically advised, possibly not our best move, but I love that. I wore red to our wedding and white to his funeral, per his request. Without Aaron... I'd fallen back into being the kind of girl I'd been before, consumed by what I should do with what was expected of me. Some friends of Aaron's come for dinner, and I feel like the sad orangutan at the free zoo in St. Paul. Like, oh, what does this placard say? Oh, she was born in Ohio. When I go to that zoo, I can't even stand. I mean, first of all, I can't stand to go to any zoo, but I don't I don't like zoos. Okay, let the record show. But when I go to that zoo, I cannot stand to even look at this poor animal because she just seems so bewildered by all of the attention. Like people want her to act like an orangutan. How should she know what an orangutan acts like? She was born in like Ohio somewhere. Not the jungle. At this dinner, it is painfully silent and I just feel these people's eyes on me constantly. They don't know what they're looking for and neither do I. They're just here to observe me, to see a widow up close, to say they were here and I get the sense that they're disappointed in me, that I'm not sad enough or happy enough for what they expected. I want 
desperately to please everyone to show them whatever version of me they're seeking. Which Nora would you like to see today? Sad Nora? Inspirational Nora? And what about my son, Ralph? What kind of a kid do they want to see him be? What do they expect him to be? Because, honestly, he looks and acts a lot like any kid his age. And also, he's different from any kid his age. Unless your five-year-old also runs around saying things like this. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. Everybody, we're going to die. We're going to die, Mom. We're going to die. 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 After Aaron died, plenty of people told me that I should give my child stability and routine, but I knew that the thing Ralph needed more than a schedule was a mom who wasn't just going through the motions. Children like the very elderly, are not beholden to the law of should. When Ralph needed to cry, he cried. When he was angry, he screamed. I did not love that second one when I was trying to buckle him into a car seat in a crowded parking lot, but I had to respect it because he wasn't hiding anything. Somewhere between our youngest years and our oldest years, We learn to hide behind shoulds and woulds and coulds instead of feeling and facing what is. What is is a combination of a lot of things. I'm a widow, so I should be sad and depressed, and I am. I'm also a published author who met Jennifer Weiner at a party who was so lovely. By the way, more on that later. And whose first book was read by Mandy Moore, also lovely, so I should just be very happy and grateful for every opportunity that I've created from the burnt ruins of my life with Aaron. And I am. I'm also in love again with a man who has two fantastic children of his own who have fully embraced Ralph and me as a part of their lives. I should be double grateful for that, triple, quadruple grateful. I should never complain again. I should not be on antidepressants and having panic attacks in my car. I should be showing off beautiful phoenix feathers, preening publicly about my rise from the ashes. I should be the poster child for what it means to move on, to get over it, to live your best life. I am happy. And I'm really, really fucking sad. So I don't need to worry about anyone else shutting on me. Because I'm shutting all over myself. I'm Nora McNerney, and this has been terrible. Thanks for asking. That story you just heard is from my next book. It is called No Happy Endings. It comes out in March, but it is available for pre-order everywhere you could get a book. Our senior producer is Hans Butow. Our assistant producer is Marcel Malikibu. Our project manager is Hannah Meacock-Ross. Emma Martins is our wonderful intern. Our music is by Joffrey Wilson. We are a production of American Public Media. There's just one more important thing that I want you all to remember. We're all going to die. We're all going to die.
We're all gonna die. Everybody, we're gonna die. We're gonna die, Mom. We're gonna die. <laughs> we're gonna die. We're gonna die. We're gonna die. We're gonna die. I'm not kidding, we're all gonna die.